Welcome to Augmented Humanity. Our guests are modern explorers working at the intersection of technology and the humanities. They help us to understand ourselves and the worlds we create in this digital age. They are thinkers, creators, makers, and academics working in diverse fields like geography, the visual arts, performing arts, storytelling, and literature. I'm your host, Craig Goldsmith. I'm your host, Ellen Dornan. On this program, we're joined by Anna Kios and Quinn Dombrowski, two of the founders of Sucho, Saving Ukrainian Cultural Heritage Online. Anna is head of the Lilly Music Library at Tufts University. Quinn is the academic technology specialist in the Division of Literatures, Cultures, and Languages and in the library at Stanford University. Quinn, Anna, thank you so much for being with us today. Before we get into some of the technical nitty-gritty of your practices and approaches to the effort to do data rescue and then data repatriation of heritage resources in Ukraine, we like to do a thing a lot of times in our fourth segment that we kind of have come to call origin stories. You may not have been eight years old and said, I think I'll be head of the music library. I'm going to be a technology specialist in the division of literatures. But at some point, you know, what led you to doing this kind of work in the digital humanities generally? You know, how did you get to be doing the work that you're doing? Really, if you want to get down to the root of it, it all started because I ran out of Spanish classes in high school. That's the original cause of it. And my high school in Tacoma, Washington, happened to offer Russian. I was a language nerd and I thought, yeah, that alphabet looks fun. Sure, why not? And with their help and support, I won the regional Olympiada of spoken Russian, which yes, is actually a thing, and uh, got to go to Russia when I was 16, a summer program. After that, I thought I was kind of done. I was going to work on Japanese in college instead was my plan and linguistics. But one thing led to another. And instead, I you know, not only stayed with Slavic, but also picked up digital humanities. I accidentally tipped my hand to the department that I knew computers because I was so embarrassed by their website, which had these bouncing Russian nesting dolls and then like under construction signs. Like I died inside a little bit every time I saw it. And I'm like, please don't even pay me. Let me fix your website to something that doesn't hurt to look at. And then one of the uh, professors, Daniela Christova, was like, aha, this person knows computers. And when she got a grant to do a digital humanities project on the Kievan Chronicle, among other things, this sort of historic document that was you know, written in and around Kiev, I was tapped as a technical person. And that was my foray into digital humanities. And I ended up sort of working in this multidisciplinary field ever since. I picked up a library degree along the way, worked in central IT, supported high performance computing at one point, and then came to Stanford in fall 2018 in a position that now kind of combines everything all together that I've ever worked on, the libraries, the languages, and the digital humanities. And while I've sort of watched with admiration the rapid response efforts that have happened to date within digital humanities, I always felt like this maybe isn't really my space. You know, this is less sort of languages and, and cultures that I understand. And I sort of felt a little bit awkward around it. When this came up, it's like, you know, if there ever was a moment where I need to step in and try to organize something like this, this is it. I have no excuse to not try to help with this. Yeah, HTML is a gateway drug, right? I got hooked young. I got to go to a program where I learned HTML in the sixth grade. I had the star background. I had my Sailor Moon fan site. I, even in high school, I, I published Quinn Notes, which was the all the notes for the International Baccalaureate program. I took good notes and I typed them up and I posted them on the web. As it happens, the Internet Archive did capture a version of my high school website with my International Baccalaureate notes. 
So thank you, Internet Archive. Anna, what about you? What was your path into this work? Well, I feel like maybe not as exciting as Quinn's. I don't know. Growing up, I knew I wanted to do something with music, right? I wasn't like, I'm going to be a head music librarian, but I am a pianist by training. So as a child, I took music lessons, piano lessons, practiced several hours a day in college, did my performance and piano degree, and then went on to get a master's in musicology. And at that point, I knew that I wanted to continue doing music research and to be either teaching music history or potentially working in a library or an archive. And so I had a lot of really great mentors. And one of my faculty members um, at Northeastern, Judith Tick, she's retired now, but she's one of my most amazing mentors that I ever had. And, you know, I still keep in touch with her to this day. And she really kind of propelled me into the world of musicology. And from there, I fell in love with research and library science. In terms of digital humanities, I started writing about women composers when I was a grad student and have written about them in different publications. And one of my projects in about, I think it was 2010, was on a Venezuelan composer named Teresa Carreño. And at that point, I was writing a book about her and I realized that I wanted to actually visualize her concert career and her tours. And so how would I do that, right? So that got me into geospatial visualization. And I started talking to my GIS colleagues at the library and started working with ArcGIS and learning how to do Python scripts and Ruby and all these programming languages. And so it was sort of like, I did it because I needed to do it in order to get to the next goal of mine. And that kind of encouraged me and just created sort of a passion for being able to work in DH and figure out, okay, how am I going to make this thing so that I could answer this question or whatever it is. And I've always been a fan of hands-on work and doing things myself. So that got me started. And since then, it's been just sort of, I don't know, work in music and coding, using XML and you know lots of other DH tools that I've picked up along the way. I personally think the musician who gets into geospatial coding is way more exciting than Quinn, but that's just me. I will say that I also studied Russian in high school, but only briefly because I too was taking Spanish classes and was like, okay, I need something else. And I speak Polish because I was born in Poland and my entire family's in Poland. So that's kind of my other connection to this work too. You know, that kind of family history and memory of what occupation can do, whether it's German occupation or Soviet occupation, has been like really deeply ingrained in me through the stories that my own family has told me. So that's sort of a very personal link that I have. You definitely have the better story because I only picked up the Polish last name by marriage. So I do have a question about the sort of personal connections on this project. So let's talk about the awesome things that you guys have rescued. Have there been collections or objects that have really spoken to you? We have a random channel in our Slack. I think it sort of comes as part of the Slack platform. Um, and one of the first things that a volunteer posted in the random channel was a ceramic figurine that looks like the world's happiest sheep. It's got a giant grin on its face. It is an 18th century two-faced lion from the collections of the National Folk Art Museum. And I love this thing. In, in Ukraine? In Ukraine, in Kyiv. And I actually printed it on fabric and I have sewn things with it. And whenever I'm having a bad day, all I have to do is look at this little friend and it brightens my day. 
I think I have a certain fondness for the random and the everyday. We have found a sort of railroad program for kids that's been going on since the 1940s where teenagers can learn about trains and how to actually run a train. And there's this beautiful 3D tour um, of their spaces and you can sort of zoom around. And, you know, again, these, these glimpses of the everyday before the war, you know, a mother dragging her toddler across the floor. Come on, you know, kid, it's time to go. The teenager is looking slightly bored and like yet another lesson on train engines. It's all very just sort of present and there. Things like children's music and dance schools with photos from recitals. All the kids lined up, there's always one who's always slightly off in their costumes. You know, the fact that we talk about cultural heritage often as something lofty and that belongs in museums and archives and it only sort of needs to be preserved in these controlled spaces. But from another perspective, cultural heritage is the everyday ways in which people kind of engage with the life and culture of their country and the ways in which that's kind of distinctive and, and unique. And those are the pieces that really speak to me. And what about you, Anna? Do you have any favorites of what you've rescued? Yeah, for me, I'm really into historical artifacts and looking at things like textual documents and evidence of people's lives. So like diaries or letters or, you know, manuscripts. And we were able to archive the Volan archives, um, which is the state archives of the Volan region. And there were images of school records for a first grade class from like the early 20th century through the Second World War, and then it stops. You know, just thinking about like the tragedy that they were going to encounter and looking at the names of those people and kind of thinking about what their histories were and what they were going through. And there was another site where there was actually a collection of diaries and also oral histories, right, of people just talking about their families and talking about their own family traditions and uh, different events that took place during their lives. So for me, it's great that we're able to preserve and archive this, but it's also just sort of this bittersweet moment of like, ugh, these people also suffer these tragedies. As somebody who works with history and music history, it's something that I am drawn to. This is by a bit of a segue, because in our fourth segment, we also like to dive into some of the nitty gritty technical aspects of the digital humanities work at hand. But with that in mind, hearing you both talk a little bit about these sort of everyday things, school records from back in the day, or manuscripts, or diaries, or photos of someone's school recital, or whatever. So whether it's already digitized or not, at some point, this data is going up on what sounds like your Amazon web-hosted servers. But who actually has the key to the kingdom? Because we've touched on cultural and data sovereignty. But some of these resources that you're storing and or digitizing and then storing, it's not stuff that necessarily you want like the whole universe browsing, right? Say you're helping one of these organizations or institutions or whatever store and preserve this data. Do they have access to it? You know, like if I wanted to FTP in and download all the data, do I have to actually, you know, call you, Anna, to get permission or do I get the keys because it was my data to begin with? Or how are you guys actually working that kind of access? And then given, of course, that you have like a thousand volunteers that are assisting and so forth. Yes, I mean, one of the convenient things about the majority of our work, and certainly the work to date, is that it literally is all public websites. So it's stuff that people have put online for there to be broad access. That is still the vast majority of what we have. 
we have been able to get in touch with a number of organizations that have wanted some degree of safe data backup and our partners at the University of Alberta are also involved in offering free online storage to cultural heritage institutions and to individuals. And in those cases, we provide the servers, but they're the ones with the keys. They're the ones uploading it. They're the ones who have access to it. We're not sharing it. We're just providing a space for them to do it. The idea being if the original server was still up, I, Craig Goldsmith, would just be able to go look at that stuff anyway. We have access to the domain registration records for all of the Ukrainian web space at this point. So our hope is to, you know, at some point be able to either sort of in group or individually or through the Cultural Heritage Ministry, reach out to the people who have these sites and ask, do you want us to keep a copy of this stored permanently and duplicated in the ways that research institutions have digital collections? Do you need this data back yourself to rebuild the website, or would you rather us just delete it? And it's the strangest project that, in some sense, the best possible outcome is for the war to end and everyone be like, nope, we're all good. You can just delete this stuff. We could actually go to bed happy if that was the message from the Ukrainian cultural heritage sector. Meaning that they still have their data and they can get it back online without you, is what Yeah. If they don't need it, if they don't want us to have separate archive copy of these sites in Western research institutions, that's okay by us. We can still feel like it's a job well done that we were able to get this just in case. Can I ask, just because you just tossed that off so breezily, how do you get the DNS records for an entire nation's web space? Turns out anyone can buy them for about 80 bucks a month. One of the many things I learned to this project You want to buy the internet's data? There's the services that you can just subscribe to. Before we part, I just want to go over one more time for anybody who's listening. If you think you have skills to contribute, you can go to sucho.org and sign up. If you don't think you have skills to contribute, you can also go to sucho.org and donate to help purchase needed equipment and materials for this project. Are there other ways that people can participate at home? That's mostly it, yes. The biggest thing is to not look away as the situation fades from being the top of the headlines every day. Don't forget that this is still going on. Pay attention. Write to your Congress people. Just because much of the U.S. has stopped paying attention in such an immediate way doesn't mean that the situation is necessarily any better in Ukraine. So keep paying attention and speaking up in support of the Ukrainian people. Well, thank you both so much for all your work rescuing and hopefully in the future repatriating all this cultural heritage data. Thank you. Thank you for having us. And if you would like more information and to get involved, again, you can visit the website sucho.org. That's S-U-C-H-O.org. Augmented Humanity is a program of the New Mexico Humanities Council, produced in partnership with KUNM-FM. You can visit us online and find out more about our programs at nmhumanities.org. Our theme music comes courtesy James Whiten, and we've had production assistance from Tristan Klum.